Welcome to Famous Last Words, where we find classic interviews from our archives and play the very best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with my friend, co-host, and creator of this show, Tom Jokic. Tom? Christopher, you and I had a moment yesterday. I would I would characterize it <laughs> almost as an argument, probably Ooh. as close as you and I get to an argument. Which doesn't really happen. No. We reenact arguments for the sake of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so it had to do with this moment of the show where I propose a topic. And then mm-hmm. you give your opinion on the topic, and I do too. And I said yesterday, just offhand, right? We, we were kind of ready. If we had to do the show yesterday, we would have been pretty much ready. And I say to you out of nowhere, Christopher, why don't you uh, talk about what your favorite song lyric is? And your <laughs> response was, of all time? You've got to be kidding. That's a rabbit hole that I will go down and you will never see me again. Can I narrow it down to 10? <laughs> and I said, and I text you back, well, maybe just one or two. And you text back, this is not fair. <laughs> I well, loved it. I stand by that response, by the way. Well, fair or not, Christopher Ward, Juno Award-winning songwriter, <laughs> tell me your favorite song lyric of all time. And I'm sure you haven't given this any thought at all. <laughs> Well, the problem is here. There's a there's a few good ones. Yeah. There's an, in fact there's an infinite number of ways even just to approach writing a lyric. As Paul yeah. McCartney told me, and not everyone can say that. Yeah. It's different every time. Yeah. But you know what? That said, I'm going to give it a go just to stay in your good graces. Okay. <laughs> For me, ground zero in the lyric world is Bob Dylan, and I don't right. think I need to justify that. Now, Dylan had a habit of leaving songs off of albums that other people would have built a career on. <laughs> and he gives a regular master class in songwriting, but nowhere more beautifully than in the song Tangled Up in Blue. The whole right. song, it's like a cubist painting. It changes from first person to third person, and you see the narrative from a variety of different perspectives all at the same time. Right. It's a song that he said took, quote, 10 years to live and two years to write. I must admit, felt a little uneasy when she bent down to tie the laces of my shoes. Trying to love in blue. Whoa, I love that quote. It's from the 1974 album Blood on the Tracks, but when I saw him included in a show about four or five years ago, Tom, he was still changing the lyrics. Oh. Now, I also have to say, just one other thing here, I also love a really simple lyric but one that cuts to the bone emotionally. Like a perfect example, do you know the song You Don't Know Me? It's written by Cindy Walker and Eddie Arnold. Probably the biggest version of, there's so many recordings of it, is by Ray Charles. Oh, The lyric okay. is, you give your hand to me and then you say hello and I can hardly speak, my heart is beating so. And anyone can tell you think you know me well, but you don't know me. Oh. It's kind of like that feeling of yearning for something that's really close at hand, but yeah. just out of reach. You know, like Just My Imagination by The Temptations has a similar theme. Right. But I love how si- there, there is not a syllable out of place in that song. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, I don't know the song, but interestingly enough, I just finished reading the new Dylan book, The, the Philosophy of Modern Song. Right. A book that I both... Loved at points and hated at points. I was surprised at how much I disliked some of it because he comes across as so curmudgeonly. And um, he he waves the flag for his causes, but he's really dismissive 
of other people's causes. So kind of in a, in a political way, I really disliked what he said. But well, there were well. moments in the book that are just like magical. But a lot of it is like stream of consciousness. And if there's one common criticism from people who have read the book is that it is stream of consciousness. But then, you know, I listened to a mm. Perry Como song that he recommended. I, you know, you couldn't drag me kicking and screaming to a Perry Como record. And then I listened to this <laughs> song and I went, oh, my God, this is a great performance. So it's it's turned me around on some songs, that's for sure. And he celebrated some, I don't know, just gems that you don't hear all the time, like... Uh Oh, El Paso by Marty Robbins, or yep. Beyond the Sea by by Bobby Darin. That's right. I just I, I just love how much he he loves the music that he's talking about. Yes, I agree with that. Did you like the book? Yes, <laughs> but that was to be expected. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. But I, I understand the annoying part. I really do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, what are your lyrics? Come on, buddy. You know, when I messaged you yesterday, I gave you, I sent you my example, and that is the line from Graceland where he says, yeah. Losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. You can picture it. You can picture a person's heart being blown apart by the loss of a love, and then that, and then people can see it. I, I just, I yeah. love that image. Um, my Old Man by Joni Mitchell, the line... But when he's gone, me and them lonesome blues collide. The bed's too big and the frying pan's too wide. I, oh, <laughs> that is just so great. So great. Wow. Um, one yeah. less bell to answer, one less egg to fry, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but my number one song that I wish I had written would probably be Tequila by the Champs because it's one <laughs> word, one word, and it's perfectly placed. Tequila. <laughs> I love that. That's, there you go. See, that, that made this whole conversation worthwhile now. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Tom, we've got another great show this week. We sure do. Normally, when I put a show together, I usually don't pair up similar artists. I like to mix it up a bit. But this week, we have two superstar Canadian singers as our headline acts, Shania Twain and Celine Dion. Mm. I was recently reading a story about Shania when it occurred to me that we have lots of Shania interviews in the archives. And when I found an interview, I discovered that the person who did the interview was me. <laughs> so I listened to it and uh -oh. brought back the entire interview. And I have to admit, it's not that bad. And of course, Celine Dion has been in the news lately due to her health issues, as well as being excluded from an extremely controversial Rolling Stone poll. I found a 1992 interview with Celine. It's so interesting to hear her on the cusp of superstardom. Plus, Christopher, I have a very special segment for you. It's Warren Zevon. Oh, <laughs> yes. Finally. Yes, the late, great Warren Zevon. Now, many people remember him only for the song Werewolves of London. But Warren was much more than that. And I know, Christopher, that you'll be happy to talk about him. Yeah. So that's Shania Twain, Celine Dion, and Warren Zevon. Together again. <laughs> Indeed they are. Okay, let's go, Christopher. Let's go, girls. Man, I feel like a woman. 1999 Shania Twain. I'm not going to touch that. Um, <laughs> superstar is the word for Shania Twain, but truly Canadian style. In this 2003 interview with our very own Tom Jokic, who is sure to have some behind-the-scenes bits to add, we get the common touch that made her a star. 
yes, she had great songs, unbelievable production, along with a wonderful stage presence, but the personality that comes through here reveals much. At this point, Shania was already the biggest selling female artist in country music history. She later had a residency in Las Vegas after dealing with some major health issues. She talks about her time in Vegas with Marilyn Dennis, but first, here's Tom. Hello there. Yes, it's Tom. Hi, this is Shania. Oh, hi, Shania. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good, good. Busy day? Oh, yes, of course. You know, I just got to say that life isn't fair, Shania, because when you were in town last time in uh, November talking to Marilyn Dennis, I was the one who researched the questions and uh, did a whole bunch of stuff. And now today, and I couldn't get down to the broadcast because I had to produce it from the studio. And now today, I'm doing an interview with you, but I'm nowhere near you, and it's just life is unfair. <laughs> where are you? Well, I'm in the studio. I'm just saying I should be there, like oh, there where you are. Yeah. Okay. You really love being on stage, don't you? Oh, it's great. It's great fun. It's, it's very rewarding because the fans are a lot of fun, and it's like a party every night. <laughs> does being on stage make all this stuff, like the interviews and the press and all that, does it make that worthwhile? Because I know that's the hardest part, I, I, I would quite imagine, anyway. Well, I mean, I, it all balances out, really. I mean, I guess if I had to pick my favorite things to do, of course, it would be just singing in general and writing music. Um, but I think it just depends. It depends on the timing. Like, I mean, when the, fir- when the album first came out, um, I was anxious to talk about it, so I didn't I didn't mind all that at all because it was just a chance to share my thoughts about it and everything. So I think it's just, I mean, there's nothing that I hate about what I do. You know, I mean, if I had it my way, sure, I would just sing and that would be it and write music. How do you personally manage to keep up the energy night after night? Does it ever, does it ever get tired or? No, it's very easy. I mean, the fans are different every night. It's a new face every night. Um, it's brand new every night. I, I genuinely feel like that. Um, it's not a chore in the least. Um, you often have something special happening during one of your shows. Is that something that just happens, or do you seek out special people? How does that always seem to work out? It's all, all just a natural flow. Um, I always include the audience in the show one way or another, and I mean I can't get to know them enough, you know. And it's, it's just it's a, you know two hours I'm out there and I'm singing you know most of the time obviously, and it gives me very little time to really get to know anybody out there. So I'm always trying to include the audience when I can. And when you do connect with them, it really does seem like a genuine connection. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I really, I think music has a, just a, a magical way of, of breaking the ice with people. And if you have music in common, then it's like an instant friendship. You know, Christopher, when you interview a superstar, you always worry that their answers are going to be automatic. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if you're ever going to get the reality of who they are as a person. Um, but there are... There are times in this interview when I feel I got close to knowing Shania a bit better, but I can't imagine how many interviews she had done before this one in 2003. So the fact that she was, you know, easy to talk to uh, was a great bonus and, and probably a bit of a great surprise to me. This is a 2003 interview with Shania Twain. Up next, Tom gets personal with Shania. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Don't forget to get caught up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words in the archives. You can find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Now, let's get back to Tom's 2003 interview with Shania Twain. Here, my partner asks her about a secret vault of music. 
Okay, speaking of music, I've heard that you have an entire vault of songs that you've written that are very, very personal, darker from what we're used to. I've always been curious in hearing a really more personal side of Shania. Not that I have any complaints about about the music that you're that you're putting out because I love the stuff. But what about this really, really personal stuff? Is there a chance that stuff will ever see the light of day? Well, what I try to explain to people is that, you know, there's not really any complete songs that I've written like that. It's like I've just got this diary of very, um, of time that I've spent with myself musically. So it's like a musical diary. And I just sit down and collect all of these little ideas. And I never, and they just sit there on these tapes. And I never plan on doing anything with them or developing them. Or You know, it's just, I see it so separate from what I'm doing commercially, I guess, is, is the point. So whether... I'll ever develop them or, and make actual songs out of them. I don't know. Um, you know, Mutt's always bugging me to listen to my tapes and stuff, so we'll see what happens. But um, generally, it's just the best way I can describe it is like having just like a musical diary. It's just like a bunch of musical notes that I have. Tom, how did you find out about this secret lyric stash of Shania's? And does it sound much less fully realized than people thought? Yeah, I think it is much less fully realized than people thought. I think I just found out about the songs when I was doing my research, and it kind of jumped out at me. It was one of those things where we knew what Shania had been through, and she's going to talk a little bit about that in a couple of clips from now. And and I know that there's, you know, some deep, dark parts of her experience, and I kind of wanted to hear more songs like that than the songs with a bunch of exclamation marks, which are great, fun songs, <laughs> right? And I say that yeah. a little bit later uh, in this interview. <laughs> I know, I like that. And those are great songs. They're so much fun. But uh, sometimes I want to get more closer to the heart of the songwriter. And so sometimes I find that stuff a little bit unemotional, and that's why I asked her about about that collection of darker, more reflective stuff. But it sounds like they're just like bits and pieces, you know? You've talked about that, where you have bits and pieces in your in your phone, and in notes, and in, in little yeah. voice messages you have for yourself. So I think that was yeah, the extent I have, of it. Yeah, I have a ton of those. I, I do not have any exclamation marks, though, just so you know. <laughs> Tom, this is a great series of questions, and it reveals a lot about her public persona. Are you as confident in real life as you are kind of in the public and in your songs? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm generally, um, you know, a very positive and proactive kind of person. Definitely just a real side of my personality. So, um, you know, what you see is what you get or what you hear is what you get. I mean, you know, when I write a song, it's coming from me personally. It is reflecting my true personality. Um, but like anyone, I mean, I'm not always just up and, and energetic and confident all the time. I mean, I have my moments, you know. Right. Your life isn't filled with exclamation marks, even though your albums are. That's right. I mean, I'm expressing that side of my personality in my music, of course, when I'm, you know, when I'm doing these albums. And a lot of the reason why I stick to that direction for my, for my albums is because I know I'm later going to be on t- tour with these songs, and I want to have two hours of fun, not, not um, two hours of melancholy, you know, introverted. Yeah, exactly. So that's part of the reason, too. I mean, I guess I, I do think about it ahead of time and go, okay, you know, how will I feel when I have to do this song a thousand times live or, two, you know, 10,000 times live? What will I feel? And I really do enjoy um, being on stage when I'm having fun. That's, that's the most enjoyable um, 
I like sharing a positive energy through my music because the reaction from the people is so energizing and so stimulating. And my music makes them happy. Yeah. And that's what I that's the thrill I get out of it. That's amazing. That must uh, must feel really great. But it's but you know, it's not to say that that's the only side of my personality, but that's the side that I get I guess I, I get the most pleasure out of sharing with the public. And Shania is not kidding there. Her live show from that time was honestly one of the most fun spectacles I had ever seen. And I took my eight-year-old son, Dallas, to see that show, his first major concert. Now, he's 27 now. We were just talking about this the other day. I said, do you remember the show? And he said, kind of. I remember the colors. Like, I remember it was big, and it was at the uh, Scotiabank Arena, I think, and yeah, it was. It was Scotiabank Arena, then called the Air Canada Centre. And it was his first major concert, other than seeing Barney the Dinosaur a few years earlier at Skydome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't really top Barney, let's face it, right? That's true. Here, Tom gets personal. There are moments in all of our lives that are turning points. Sorry, I'm really changing the subject here, but I've only got a few minutes. What have been the biggest turning points in your life? Uh, hmm. Well, my parents dying was a very big um, turning point in my life. Just, you know, you reassess your values. I mean, everything gets reassessed at that point. Um, And meeting Mutt was another big one. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I guess for anybody, meeting the person that they're going to be spend the rest of their life with is what you would consider a big turning point in your life. Um, And then having my child. So it's... I think pre- three pretty normal things, probably the same things a lot of people would say would be turning points. I wouldn't consider anything in my career a turning point in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my career has evolved so gradually over the years. I started singing so, so young. You know, it's not, I think if, you know, you ask somebody who's been on a, um, you know, some kind of talent search thing and overnight becomes a star, I think, you know, used to be a secretary, but now is like, you know, the the most written about headline celebrity, I think that that would be considered a turning point in someone's life. Right, right. But that didn't happen to me. I mean, this has been a very gradual um, building um, career. So most of the turning points in my life have been personal. You're listening to highlights from a 2003 chat that I had with Shania Twain. And at this point, the radio station I was at, meaning Chum FM in Toronto, had interviewed Shania a bunch of times, but I had never personally met her, which is what I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that I did with her. And it wasn't until 12 years later that I finally met Shania in the studio. All right, well, let's fast forward those 12 years from 2003 to 2015. Shania's in the studio and so is Tom. Here, Shania <laughs> talks with Marilyn Dennis about parenting on the road and Las Vegas. How's your son doing? He's doing great. How old is he now? He's 13. My gosh. Has he ever experienced being on the road with you? Uh, yeah, but he was a toddler. He was. Yeah, that's right. So he, he was just he a toddler. Know. He was, you know, knee high at, right. that, at that point. And so he doesn't really, he has a, you know... He understands the whole vibe of it, but was he was in bed by the time I was on stage. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, of yeah, at that that's point, right. he that's was on the be, bus in his bunk. That's going to be a great learning curve for him too, to see. You know, I I know he saw you in Vegas, but this is going to be on the road. He's going to see something there too. What was the what was the, the the other thing that you learned when you were in Vegas? I mean, I know that you took advantage of the great weather there, and I you gardened there. I know you hiked there. You know, did you did you love your time there? Besides the stage thing, did you love living there? I I enjoyed it. I made the most of it, and uh, you know, I it's always sunny. 
and True. they treat you very well there. I had a, a, a beautiful apartment, a great kitchen, so and I love to cook, so I did a lot of my own cooking. Yeah. And just made the most of the lifestyle. There's a lot of great restaurants there. The shopping's good. And like I said, it went by so fast yeah. that there almost wasn't enough time. And that surprised me as well, because yeah. I thought I would be very isolated there. Mm-hmm. But everything's walking distance, yep. so I was. you'd be surprised. You know, you just get a hit the street, and it's so crowded, nobody ever notices anyway. And, you, you know, I'm good at blending in. And yeah. You're blending in in Vegas? <laughs> I highly doubt I'm that. I'm a good blender. Yeah, did you, you know. run into any other people that were having shows out there as well, like on the street? Did you get together with them? Well, or? not on the street. But, I mean, you know, we'd yeah. go for meals and stuff like that. Very it's cool. true, we would catch up after shows. But. Oh, that's great. And there you have the difference between a competent interviewer, meaning me, and a masterful one, meaning Marilyn Dennis. <laughs> During my interview with Shania, she was great, very professional, but put her with Marilyn, and Shania just came alive. I don't know if you noticed that, just the different, the difference in personality between her, and I mean, when I was talking to her, she was on the phone, but in person with Marilyn, holy smoke. And by the way, Marilyn did a very in-depth long-form interview with Shania in about 2001 or 2002 that I am going to dig up and I'm going to play some highlights for you sometime soon. Don't sell yourself short here, my friend, because the difference between talking to somebody on the phone versus in studio, live, face-to-face is massive. Well, I appreciate that. And I do accept that. And I understand what you're saying. It just, just the, almost the looseness between the two of them, like their sisters kind of catching up, you know? Marilyn's the master at that. Yes, it does show how good Marilyn really is. Absolutely. That's Shania Twain on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, we go back to 1992 for an interview with Celine Dion. She was already living the dream by that time and yet had no idea what was just ahead of her. Celine, in her own words, up next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words, heard on radio stations across Canada and as a podcast in more than 100 countries around the world on the iHeartRadio app or any other major podcast platform. We just heard interview clips from Shania Twain from 2003 and 2015. Now let's talk to Celine Dion. That's her massive hit from 1997, Celine Dion, and My Heart Will Go On. Tom, an epic career like Celine Dion's comes along rarely. But someone had to dream it up before it became a reality. The dreaming for Celine was not that many years before this interview. You got to realize that she was only 24 at the time. Mm -hmm. And she'd already achieved some stunning accomplishments as a singer. In this interview, she talks about being quiet about big ambitions, growing up in a huge musical family, and then meeting the man who would make all of those dreams possible. Yeah, and of course, Celine has been in the news recently with a message that she posted about her health. Yes, sadly, she just announced that she had to postpone her tour dates in 2023 because she's been diagnosed with stiff person syndrome, something I'd never heard of before. No. It's a rare neurological disorder that affects her muscles and vocal cords. Music lovers around the world wait for her recovery and hope to hear that incredible voice again very soon. Absolutely. So now we go to the interview, and it's from 1992. Celine talks about dreams coming true, in particular, an Oscar dream for her. I've I've been dreaming about singing all my life. Mm -hmm. When I was two, three, five years old, I started to to dream about singing and be part of, like, to sing as much as possible in different languages, to sing live with a band and to travel, you know, just sing myself on stage. 
But now everything that's happening, it's like you hope those things will happen once in your life. Like just for example, you hope maybe one day to have a gold record, maybe mm -hmm. to be nominated, maybe to be part of the Oscar. You know, you just dream about it, but you don't talk too loud about it because people will say, no, it's okay, you know, think about it, but forget it. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. But um, I've been thinking a lot about it, dreaming a lot about it, but now it's happening. And it's very strange because when, when something happened to me, Like, for example, um, the, the Oscars, because it's still in my mind very, very oh, much. Oh, absolutely, it was sure. Night. You know, there's uh -huh. a lot of people, like, watch that show. And you just, like, hope to be part of this once in your life. And I'm 24 years old, and it did happen. I just... Uh, and birthday. I always realize those things after. Like, after this night, I went back at the hotel, and I started to realize that... It, it really happened for real. And then watching it on television, I realized it more after. Wow, hard to believe that this was more than 30 years ago. And the career peaks she is hitting in 1991-92 are nothing compared to what's about to happen in the next decade. She talks about growing up in a musical family and that huge first audition. I started to sing. Actually, I started to sing. I was really little. Five years old, I did my first show. Mm -hmm. My parents used to tour with uh, members of my family. And uh, my parents are musicians. All of my family are musicians or deaf singers. Um, and then I was following my family on tour, so I grew up in a music ambience. And then, um, and then I, I was telling my mom, "Please, mom, I want to sing. I want to sing." Anyway, she said, "Oh my God, not a, not the 14 one wants to sing because all the 13 before me." They're singers or musicians. She said, "Oh my God, I'm not another one." <laughs> so okay, she said, "I would. I want you to do it professionally." So me, I didn't really understand the difference between singing and singing professionally. So she wrote my first song. And uh, one of my brother and me wrote the music at home. Mm -hmm. Little tape cassette, make a, you know, recording. We, we recorded that. Went to a very cheap studio and we did a demo. And a very bad demo, by the way. And anyway, we sent it to a manager, Rene Angelil. Uh -huh. And I met him. I was 12 years old. And he asked me to sing in front of him, like in a room, without... Nobody. And just like this, a cappella, no music. And he said, just imagine that you're on stage right now and you are looking at the balconies. Anyway, he made me feel so good. Like, you're, I was on stage with him. I was like, yeah. that's what I wanted so much. So I said, yeah, just something, though. I'm, I'm used to sing with a mic. So he said, oh, okay, uh, I'm going to give you my pen. So just imagine that it's a mic. Okay. So I had to sing louder, but anyway, it's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started to sing and he started to cry. And my mom was with me, actually, you know, of course. And I was 12, and they talked together, and we've been working for 11 years now. 11 years. Whoa. <clears throat> and the success hit right away? First album, boom? Uh, actually, uh, yeah, I think I was lucky. It worked right away. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so to put that clip in context, uh, Celine and Renee Angelil had been together for four years at this point, but secretly they went public the following year and they married two years later in 94 and they stayed together until his passing in 2016. And by the way, other than her health news, Celine has been the topic of great social media outrage lately after her fans were absolutely incensed that she was not included in the Rolling Stone list of greatest singers of all time. And the backlash was swift. Like if you Google Rolling Stone best singers, Celine will come up even though she's not on the list because she's not on the list. But as Rolling Stone noted in the introduction to the, to the list of the best singers ever, 
Before you start complaining about this, keep in mind that this is the greatest singers list, not the greatest voices list. Talent is impressive. Genius is transcendent. So that's why someone with such an unusual voice like Bob Dylan was on the list and why perhaps Celine wasn't. And by the way, if you're wondering, the top three singers on the Rolling Stone list are Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, and Sam Cooke. Well, I, that feels to me like splitting hairs. This is the first time I've seen this quote. Yeah. Separating of the voices from the singers. But of course, you know, I mean, any publication that's printing a best of list is doing it through the filter of who they think their readers are. Sure. I think people use the sort of her technical prowess against yes. her in some ways. I think so. And I, I might be one of them. I mean, is she capable of bringing the emotion to go with the technique? If the answer is yes, then that's all you got to know. Right. Yeah. So if you were making up that top 100 vocalist lists of all time, would you place Celine Dion in the top 100? Well, like you, I don't listen to Celine when I'm at home. When right. I hear her, I'm still blown away by her extraordinary uh, gifts. Yeah. Um, and I realize that a lot of people are moved like really, really touched by what she pours of herself into that song, you know, including her abilities as well as her emotional connection with a lyric. Um, so I would include her for that reason. Okay, good point. There you go, Celine Dion on Famous Lost Words. So far this week, we've had two massive Canadian superstars, and there are so many more in the archives. Catch my interviews with Miles Goodwin of April Wine, Gordon Lightfoot, Alanis Morissette, or Randy and Burton from the Guess Who, or Christopher's Chats with Gowan or Alan Frew of Glass Tiger, and so many others. We have episodes with Rush, and one more to come, by the way, as well as Jan Arden, Blue Rodeo, Corey Hart, Brian Adams, Lighthouse, Tragically Hip, and so many more. To find them, follow Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Up next, an artist who is widely known for just one hit, but his body of work is respected by songwriters everywhere. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Don't forget to check out past episodes of the show. We have special episodes on the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, plus interviews with Mick Jagger and John Lennon. Simply follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and scroll through the episodes to find an interview with your favorite artists. Such a great song, 1978, The Unique Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. Tom, Warren Zevon was an iconic artist who, for me, was kind of the Hunter S. Thompson of songwriters. Oh. Often underappreciated, he told dark tales with an absurdist sort of gonzo quality to them, like, for example, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. <laughs> I mean, where do you go once you've launched your career with Werewolves of London? Yeah, for sure. Zevon revealed that he was capable of writing timeless, beautiful songs with aching themes to them. Songs like Hasten Down the Wind, the title of a Linda Ronstadt album, and a song I love called Accidentally Like a Martyr. His life and career had wild ups and downs, but he always had a loyal group of friends and believers. People like Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, and the members of R.E.M. And, he said, David Letterman was the best friend his music ever had. Wow. These clips reveal the seriously thoughtful side of a phenomenally talented songwriter. 
Here, Zivon explains why he can't get too analytical about his own work while others do. I don't think it's my place to evaluate why people like certain things about my work, because then I would have to go out. My natural reaction would be to continue writing along the lines of the things that people like. And I've never done that because I'm just getting used to the idea that people really do like some of my work. So, I don't know. I guess it's something like they haven't really heard before. It's something from far away, you know, from a different kind of life and a different kind of attitude and a different kind of way of saying things and looking at things. But I don't think it's real healthy for me to decide that a certain kind of way, a certain kind of song of mine is going to strike a certain chord with people because then I'd, it would become maybe artificial. You might that be second-guessing kind of, them or something like that. Well, that sounds kind of jive when I hear myself saying it. Yep, you don't want to sound jive there, Warren. But he does make the point that so many other writers share. You can't be premeditated about writing a hit song. It's so hard to do. Well, yes, you're telling Noah about the flood here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because if you have any kind of success, as he did with um, Werewolves of London, the first thing people want you to do is, can you give us another werewolves? It's like, well, the answer is no, I can't. Yes, that's right. Yes, you know exactly of, of what he speaks. With Black Velvet. Can you give us another Black Velvet? Well, I'm trying to remember if I tried or not, because it would have been a vain effort, but nevertheless. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of writing hit songs, here is a great chronicle of just how whimsical the creative process can be as Warren breaks down the writing of Werewolves of London. I don't mind it. I mean, I I would hate it to be my epitaph, you know, just Warren Zevon. Ah, But I enjoy it. But it, we weren't aware of creating a, you know, a pop phenomenon. We were just having fun when we wrote it. It was an interaction of a lot of different people. You know, it originated. It was an idea of Phil Everly's, you know, one of the Everly brothers, who said, "Why don't you write a song for my next album? You know, make it a write a dance song, like call it the Werewolves of London." And my friends all have the sort of sense of humor that you don't really argue with. You just say, "Okay, <laughs> I'll buy that." And I was sitting with Leroy Marinell, and he started playing guitar figure. And then Wadi Wachtel, the guitarist, you know, walked in and said, what are you doing? And we said, we're doing the Werewolves of London. And he said, you mean, the Werewolves of London? We said, that's right. And five minutes later, we, ten minutes later, we finished the whole song just by throwing the lines back and forth. And it was just something between the, the three of us that started with a suggestion for the film. Again, Werewolves of London, Warren Zevon from 1978. Okay, Christopher, here's something I just found out. The rhythm section of that song came directly from Fleetwood Mac. It's Mick Fleetwood on drums and John McVie on bass on Werewolves of London. Didn't know. I I was unaware of that. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny. Here, Warren talks about his time working with the Everly Brothers. They were looking for, a, they hadn't worked with a piano player much in the 60s and it was around 1970 that I met him and they wanted to put together a new band and I met him through mutual friends and became their sort of band leader and piano player for a while that's where I met Waddy and Waddy and I played with him and it was the first time I'd really gone on the road for long periods of time and experienced that and they were both very encouraging to me were you around when they broke up yeah how did that happen? It happened, I think, essentially, because uh, they were uh, working 
night after night, which having been on the road for seven or eight weeks now, is, uh, I can tell you, is really grueling, you know, it's really emotionally exhausting. Well, they did that for 15 years, and that's 16 years, and that's long enough. That's long enough to expect of anybody, particularly a family, I guess. Wow, that's a fascinating piece of music history. Warren Zevon talking about his time as the band leader of the Everly Brothers. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, never mind trying to replicate your biggest hit. He also has the challenge of bad reviews to deal with. Mm -hmm. You run a gamut where when you're not selling any records at all, critics like to champion your cause. And when you sell a lot of records, they, uh, they look for the next person who's not able, not making a living and not selling records to be interested in. And I'm beginning to get a little backlash, maybe. Like I suppose maybe... I don't know if Bruce Springsteen has, but I don't think it's justified. It doesn't have anything to do with his work or him. I don't think it has any effect on him, but it's beginning to happen to me, I guess. But at the same time, I've I've already become acquainted with a couple of critics who are just real bright, bright men who love rock and roll, you know, so they make good conversationalists and good friends. So I haven't been through any nervous breakdowns over bad reviews. I've earned a couple. Oh, great stuff. Warren <laughs> Zevon saying, you know what? Sometimes I deserve those uh, those bad reviews. Very good. <laughs> Here he deals with some very serious subject matter, including the topic of death. In the interview, it feels pretty weighty, but in the songs, satire relieves the darkness. Something I admire about myself is that I, I, I don't think I understand too many things very well, but I do understand the fact that there are, thing, there are issues that have to be have to be dealt with head-on, like death and like violence and like guns and society and like all that stuff. And you can't just walk away from it and write about, uh, you know, whatever. I can't think of a contrary example, and it would just be contrary for me to think of an example. But mm-hmm. I've said before that I'd rather see a Clint Eastwood movie than a Close Encounters kind of movie because it's... You know, I don't think the Martians are going to come and save us. I think that we're going to have to figure out what violence and death and uh, law and wrong law and all those things mean in our lives. We're going to have to figure those things out before, even if there were the Martians to come land, uh, you know, you know, they were going to land and take us away, smile and uh, all that nonsense. Uh, they wouldn't even consider doing it until we'd figured out where we were at, you know, as a society. And I don't know if I'm helping or hindering the progress, but I know that I'm trying to get, I'm trying to be involved personally with the issues that I think have to be faced. And my way of dealing with them essentially is to try to hang on to my sense of humor. Because I think if a human being loses their sense of humor, they are dead in every, in every way, you know. They may still be breathing, but they're really dead. Oh, and if anyone faced those topics in their music, it was Warren Zevon. When he was diagnosed with cancer in 2002, he was worried that the prescribed treatment would incapacitate his abilities. So he went into the studio instead and wrote his final album. That is a that is quite a decision. And then David mm-hmm. Letterman had him on his show as his only guest for the entire hour, where Warren played a bunch of songs and talked to David about his mortality. Yeah. And when Letterman asked Zivon about what he'd learned in the face of everything, Warren famously said, 
enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's both funny and profound. Yeah. There you go. Warren Zevon on Famous Lost Words. That's a wrap for this week. Famous Lost Words is created and produced by my co-host, Tom Jokic. Executive producer is Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. Tell your friends about Famous Lost Words so we can keep making some more shows. And don't forget to check out past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the iHeartRadio app.